You're listening to The 7 Peer Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders, entrepreneurs, and startups fill gaps, streamline operations, and drive success across the seven peers of business. Really quick before we dive into this week's episode, a lot of you haven't yet hit the follow button on your podcast listening platform of choice. And so if you've ever enjoyed this podcast, we have a request. Please go hit the follow button. It helps the show more than you know, and the more exposure we have, the more people we can share these dynamic insights and stories with. Now, without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Seven Peer Podcast. Today we have another great episode with another exciting, you know, person here. Today we're going to be talking about venture chats and some secrets to start startup success because there's lots of different, you know, things out there and resources for people. And we thought having today's guest is going to be a really important one because this is one of those resources here, at least in the Triangle and elsewhere now because they're branching out a little bit more than that. Uh, in the investment community. So, you know, before we get started, this person's got a really interesting background. And I know, Aaron, you're going to talk a little bit more about this, but I think this is a this is a very, very, very connected thing that I'm going to say here first. Why do hockey goalies have so much money in the bank? Why, why do they have so much money in the bank? Because they are good at saving. Oh, there you go. That's good. They're, they're really good at saving my shots. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. So with that, the reason I want that one in there is we have somebody that's got a little bit of a hockey background that I know a lot of people here know him locally. So Aaron, tell everybody who we have with us today. Yes. Today we are hosting Tim McLaughlin on the Seven Peer podcast. So a little bit about Tim. He is the managing partner at Co-Founders Capital, which is one of the largest seed stage venture capital firms in the entire Southeast. He has served on the board of directors for over a dozen tech companies. Um, He's on the executive committee for the Council for Entrepreneurial Development, and he's also a core reviewer on the NC IDEA Selection Committee. Tim is a Harvard grad, and he's also received an MBA from UNC Keenan Flagler, and he currently lives in Raleigh with his wife, and two kiddos and word on the street is you know a thing or two about hockey so i'm excited to hear more about how that's played a part in your journey as well so tim welcome to the seven peer podcast well aaron thank you so much anthony thanks so much for for having me on i'm excited yeah so you know tim i think the you know everybody's heard i know i've heard you talk about the hockey you know part of your background but i had to throw in the little dad joke in there you know tying to the hockey thing but it is always important right to understand some of the background to how the professional journey you know has you know taken you and sometimes sports leads you know to that and i know you know in your background in your bio obviously there was some aspirational you know things there you know around hockey but just give us a brief kind of personal journey for you how you got started in the field like how you went from you know this one aspirational goal of being a hockey player right to you know kind of where you are today give us a little background sure well i i grew up in raleigh north carolina and there was not a ton of hockey when I was growing up. So think 1990, 1991, um, there was a start with this East Coast Hockey League team, the ECHL, called the Raleigh Ice Caps. So some of the listeners might remember the Raleigh Ice Caps pre-hurricanes days. And so my dad and I would go to the games and I'd 
grew up playing youth hockey and that, that got me into it and he would coach me and and youth hockey back then was 15 kids showed up for tryouts two of them couldn't skate so they might get cut or might be alternates and then <laughs> and then you had it your travel team and so that was it um but fast forward to uh 2000, 1999, 2000, I went up to Boston um, to go to boarding school. I attended boarding school up there um, at a school called Brooks School up in North Andover, Massachusetts. And I thought I was going to a hockey school. I, 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 when I got there, I thought everybody played hockey. I thought that was the reason that everyone went to this school. And I would ask the, the, the kids that were there in my class, I said, so why, why are you here? Or where do you play hockey? And they said, I don't play hockey. And I'm here because... My parents went here. My grandparents went here. And so it was this eye-opening experience. But we had a rink on campus. And so I was going from skating, maybe practicing a half hour a week or, or an hour a week to two hours every day. And I couldn't get enough of it. Along the way, and looking back, I realized I also got a world-class education and the opportunity to get into a school like Harvard and, and, and go. And, and I probably wouldn't have done that if I'd stayed here. And so hockey was this thread that kept driving me. Um, to make decisions. And I had a lot of good other outcomes along the way when it came to schooling and extracurriculars. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? Because sometimes, right, like these one things lead to things that you had no connection to, right? And, you know, sometimes it's sports, sometimes it's music, sometimes it's other things, right? That there's always kind of these connections to the future. And I always find it interesting kind of asking that question just to understand where the thread you know, was because those, those little things, right. Turn into these bigger macro, you know, level, you know, things. And one of the things that's interesting just because of, you know, having played sports, you know, my whole life and, you know, wish I still could it just hurts too much. You know, <laughs> yeah. now, right. You know, there's, I, you know, there's other things that I know have played part in, you know, a lot of people's personal journeys. And one of the things that I was reading, you know, about you too, was just the philanthropy start, you know, as part of this, because you've, you, you're, you've used that idea of sports, into that side as well. And it's more than just the business side, right? So there's obviously some influences that connected that as well. Is that correct? So, so in the summers and what I would do is I would, I would run hockey camps. So in the summers when, you know, in, in college, when I was at Harvard, I would run hockey camps. And when I graduated, I graduated in 2008 and I started this hockey training company. And so what I did was I found this intersection of what I thought I was pretty good at, what I thought was meaningful, right? And where I could make some money. And that was, I opened this hockey training company in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And, um, and through that, I got to do a lot of great stuff. I got to work with a lot of great kids and a lot of great families, um, got to give back a little bit, uh, and, and donate to the community and get involved, um, with a lot of folks in the local community, great business people. And I ran that company for about seven years. Um, and, and really, so hockey was still a thread running through this journey. But I met so many great people and really created this great network here locally of folks that could be mentors and were giving back to the community in so many different ways and allowed me to, you know, run a business, you know, successfully um, and uh, experience that entrepreneurial journey, but also build, build my network here in the Triangle. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool, Tim. You think about it, right? To your point, right? Hockey just wasn't a thing, you know, up until, right, the hurricanes have now made it a big thing, you know, here. And if you, you know, you go back where, you know, again, you were up in the Northeast where it's a much bigger, you know, thing that happens pretty regularly having grown up up there as well, right? Hockey is in a lot of people's DNA, 
you know, up there and you, you start to come here and to be able to build and be a part of what was building in those early stages is, is, you know, pretty interesting because there weren't a lot of people that were in that early, you know, in the environment of hockey here. Well, well, you know, I, it's, it's funny now with what I do now and which I'm sure we're going to get into, but I never really considered myself an entrepreneur. I was, I started a company. I literally went in with a sledgehammer and took out these batting cages and built a facility and, got my first customer and first revenue. And like, I did all that. I was the entrepreneur. You know, that that's in the inside of me goes, Oh no, took out batting cages. You know? As yeah. Yeah. Player. Yeah. So I, I, I apologize, but <laughs> they right. were making the rink was making a little more money. Off of yeah, the, exactly. Then the cages quarters into the, the batting machine to the pitching machines. But, um, but you know, I did this market analysis where like youth hockey was growing in the area. And so I'm looking at an opportunity where I set up the location was, in a facility that had two ice rinks so I could run multiple programs off ice on the ice. I did this whole like business plan that now I'm looking back on, I probably did a terrible job with it, but it was all these things that now I teach and, and are part of my everyday, everyday business world. Um, but, but I, on the entrepreneurial journey, like when I think back and I sit across the table from entrepreneurs, I think I can speak with some credibility because of a couple of things you had to hire, you had to fire, and, and I joke that I knew exactly how much time it would take to get money from my personal bank account to the business bank account and then back again without my wife trying to f- figure it out so I can make payroll. Um, and so those are those are things that now I can when I when I sit across from these entrepreneurs, I can speak with a little bit of credibility. Well, I think there is some credibility to that, right, which, you know, we can go into some of the other stuff, too, because, you know, obviously, you know, there's a bigger question. There. <laughs> would you have invested in yourself? Right. But we won't, we won't <laughs> I don't necessarily want to go there yet. But, you know, I think it's kind of funny because there's so many paths. Right. When you think about that journey of starting businesses. Right. And regardless of it's a software company or something else. Right. This wasn't even in that vein. And here you are, you know, spending a lot of time on the tech side these days. And there are a lot of paths, right, to getting funding to get these businesses going on. And I think it's kind of good, you know, crowdfunding, grants, bootstrapping, et cetera. And I, you know, I know a lot of investors like yourself talk about all this stuff, family and friends, et cetera. You know, tell us a little bit about like, what is it that you look at, like when you're considering some of the, the evaluation criteria for the companies you guys invest in? Because I think a lot of people have misconceptions about what makes people stand out. Um, and it's not always some of the things I think you would just on the surface, you know, put two and two together for. So to tell me a little bit more about that. Like, as you start to look now on the other side, after running a business and some, you know, advice to people about what makes them stand out. Sure. So let me, I'll, I'll, I'll actually answer your question. Would I right now invest in my old company? And the answer is no, for, for multiple reasons, but one of them just let's, let's level set. I go out and I raise money. So we have our new fund, a $50 million fund. My partners and I have gone out over the last couple of years and raised that money. The way we raise that money is with a thesis, right? With, with a plan. Here are the types of businesses we are looking for. Here are the type of returns we're trying to generate. Here's the geography and stage of company in which we're investing. We have a thesis and people choose to invest in us because we fit their portfolio of investments that they want to invest in. So with that, there's a certain criteria of companies that I'm allowed to invest in because I've taken people's money and I've told them the asset class that we're investing in. So would I invest in my own company? No, because that's not why I raised money in the type of company that I was going to invest in. So the first stage of what I look for is, does it fit with what I told our investors we were going to do? Is it an early stage company? Is it based in the Southeast? Is it a software business? Um, 
all of these things. Can, can we write a meaningful check of a million, million and a half dollars that's worth our time to be in that business, but is also impactful enough for the company where it makes sense? The second level I would say is, is this a business that can generate the kind of returns that we're looking for? And this is something that there's a misconception with founders and, and you know, you know yeah. which I've seen business plans where someone comes in and says, we need a million dollars and we're going to triple your money in two years. How great is that? And I'm sitting here saying, I'm trying to turn 50 million into 150 or $200 million. I don't care about turning a million into three. And it's, it, it blows some people's minds, which is like, why wouldn't I be interested in that? Well, guess what? There is a chance that that deal is going to go to zero and you're going to lose your money. And I have to be comfortable with that. So the stage I would say is, does this meet our fund criteria? Does it meet our, our uh, return expectations? Which I want to know how to turn a million or two million into 25 million, right? And we're willing to take risks on that side. And then we can talk about all the, the, the things below that, about the type of plan, the type of entrepreneur, the team all of that stuff. But that that's the starting point. Well, no, and I think that's a, it's a valid point. And that's why I wanted you to just talk about it a little bit, because there is that misconception, right, of a little be getting a little bit more <laughs> does not necessarily translate, you know, to a lot of people when you're looking at trying to, you know, get capital. And it really is one of the things that I think people like, oh, you're, I'm just going to give you that check and we'll be cool is one of those things that I think people forget, right? Yeah. Or, or you know, look, it's just, in, in all honesty, sometimes they just don't know because they haven't done it before. Yeah. And, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's coming with a whole ton of strings, you know, attached to it. But it is one of those things that you have to understand. There is a return that has to be brought back to your point, right? To your partners on the other side. Well, and I, it, listen, I make personal, I've made some personal investments. So when I make personal investments, if so somebody's going to tell me, Hey, listen, this is a, you know, you're going to get some dividends and you might make 15% a year on your money. And okay, good. That, that, that is part of the portfolio that I want to invest in. Yes. That's not what we do here at co-founders and this, this mismatch, I think entrepreneurs come in and they, they pitch us an idea and I say, no, that that's not saying you don't have a good business. That's not saying you can't make a lot of money. It just doesn't match what we're trying to do to maximize returns to RLPs. And I tell people all the time, I think you're going to make a lot of money on this deal. I think that there will be angel investors or other investors that are going to get a great outcome, but it's not a fit for us. And sometimes that misalignment, you know, it, it, no, it, no, it makes sense to me. And that's where I was actually going to go. Right. Sometimes there are different types of investors based on that type of stage or type of organization. And I think this is one of the, the things that obviously I've known throughout my career and what you guys do is to your point, like what is that portfolio of types of investments that you're looking at versus, you know, others that might be looking at something completely different. And, you know, this is, I think, one of those misconceptions that sometimes, you know, entrepreneurs don't do their homework right yeah. enough on what that investor is really interested in. And it's really an important criteria, right? Of the pros and the cons, like for our listeners, you know, to, to understand when you're looking at these different types of partners, cause it's a two way street on this, you have to understand what makes them tick. And there's a lot of that. I think that's just a mismatch because they're trying to reach out, right? And they're not ultimately doing the homework on the other side. Well, let me, let, so let me give you like a, a, a crystal clear example that when I talk to founders, they kind of get it, all right? I say, all right, we're going to invest. They want to raise a million dollars, all right? So we give them a million dollars. And let's say we take 20% of the company, ownership of the company for that million dollars, just hypothetically. They take the company and they, and they still own 80% of it, the founder. 
they take it and they grow that company to $20 million, a $20 million value. Somebody offers them $20 million to buy the business, right? I own 20%, they own 80. We'd walk away with $4 million, right? Which would be good with 4X our money. They'd walk away with $16 million, have life-changing, generational changing kind of wealth. And then I tell them, when you get that offer, I'm going to say no. I'm going to veto that deal. We are not going to take that money. We're going to keep growing and we're going to risk that you lose everything. Do you still want my million dollars? And when I tell them that, sometimes their eyes light up and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. You would four extra money and I'd walk away with $16 million and you're going to say no. Yes, I am going to say no. Do you still want that million dollars? And then that is when we kind of level set on what the return expectations actually are. Yeah. And I think that's what people have to understand a little bit, right? Is right. There is an expectation on both sides that you have to understand because these relationships, right, go pretty deep. And if you got to look at what the, the end end game is, not the short term. Well, and, and I would say that the what is a good outcome changes like every day, every week in yeah. entrepreneur, entrepreneur land, right? We're Fair. sitting here with some companies say, oh, my gosh, if we could, you know, get half of our money back, we'd be thrilled. All of a sudden they close a couple of big deals. And now it's like maybe this is the one we should put more money into and we can keep growing and scaling keep building it. Yeah. And half our fund. Well, that's a good question too, right? And those are some of the criteria when you look at the pros and the cons, right, of the different investments of what helps fuel it, you know, further. And this is one of those investment strategies of like, if we were able to go back in, you know, for another round at that point, does that fuel it now from going to 4X to 5X to 6X and so on? And, you know, there's a lot of trends, right, based on what's happening in the macro environments and sometimes the micro environments, especially here in the Southeast, right? We're seeing a lot of different trends here that we don't necessarily see in other places around the country. Are, you know, are there any kind of innovations, trends, things that you guys are seeing that are becoming, you know, investable, if you will, right? For, you know, B2B software companies, especially here in the Southeast? Yeah, I think that, so, so I think that the, this reset we've had from a macro environment, there's two things that are happening right now. One, there's a reset on valuations. Money, money isn't free anymore. Money Correct. isn't cheap to get. It's hard. It's very hard to get. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of companies that have had to do more with less and they're kind of separating themselves out uh, as to the really attractive investable deals, right? All of a sudden a company has been able to grow a little bit more without raising outside money. They've been able to bootstrap, which is, you know, just funding yourself um, for a little bit longer, get a little bit further, show that they're a little bit more capital efficient. And those companies are kind of separating themselves. So you are, you are seeing that a little bit. Um, the other thing that I would say is, you know, you've seen this kind of AI, every, everything is AI, right? Every yeah. single company has a slide on their deck where they're using AI. And I had three people pitch me AI ideas last night at an event I went to. So yes, everything is about AI. And I had to, you know, I, I know where you're going to go with this, I think, but go ahead. Well, well, we see, so we saw the same thing with, with blockchain and we saw the same, like blockchain isn't a business model, it's a technology, <laughs> right? AI isn't a business model, it's a technology. And so it's so easy to get your hands on the, this a, AI that what you have to do is separate out. Is this driving real business value? And down the line, are you creating something that somebody is actually going to buy? If you put a thin wrapper around what's publicly available to everybody, right, and call it an AI solution, how differentiated are you from, uh, you know, someone else that can do this in the market? The example I give is when I hear a pitch which says, you know what, I had this idea and over the weekend I developed this solution and now I'm generating revenue. Well, if you did that over the weekend, somebody else can do that over the weekend. Exactly. Right? So are, how are you creating defensibility in a moat 
where somebody's going to come and buy your business when I'm looking at it to invest for 100, 200, 300 million dollars. Agreed. What, what are you creating? Now, I, I want to make it very clear that doesn't mean that there's not an opportunity to make money in that space by putting a thin wrapper around something and going and selling it and generating cash and doing all that. But it might not be a, a acquirable business for a large amount of money. Yeah, it might be a great business for you, right, as an individual and something that actually can generate revenue for you and help provide for your family. But that was like some of the ideas that I've heard, too, you know, of late, like they are not, you know, mind change types of technologies. I was like, well, here are the three others that are doing the same exact thing. I was, you know, having this conversation last night and it's like, just because to your point, I think blockchain is a great example, you know, of that. It's like now everybody's in that and now we don't hear about it at all. If, if you start your pitch with blockchain, with the technology, with the blockchain or the AI, you've lost me because I want to talk about business value props. How are you creating value? And then next step is, okay, I'll figure out how you do it later. But tell me the, how you're yeah, creating. AI could be a piece of the tool. It doesn't need to be everything that you wrap around it, right? And that's the same thing. Like a couple of the people that came up to me, <laughs> it was the same thing they started with. I have this AI solution. It's like, okay, here we go again, right? And I think we're just hearing it. It's becoming a little bit overplayed. But at the same time, yes, there is some cool technology behind, you know, what's happening in that space. And can you leverage it in the, to your point, the business value prop side of that? You know, and, you know, when I look at it, you know, knowing some of the portfolio companies and the things that you've got, you know, you all have worked with, and I know some of your companies are actually doing some investments in there. Are there any kind of exciting developments with any of those that you're seeing come out of the co-founders companies, you know, things that you think the listeners should be aware about, like what, you know, cause I know a few of them, but I want to see from your perspective, you know, what should people hear about that's happening on all this? You know, I think, I think that we have a, a company, uh, element 451. We have another company, Ecomap, which have real, um, so element 451 is our fund two portfolio. They do, uh, enrollment management and marketing for, uh, higher ed. So think, um, you know, a university that's looking to attract students. Well, now there's so much technology that can leverage chatbots, engagement, auto auto engagement for students that are coming to the school, can engage with students while they're at school to make sure they retain students. And it's a lot more cost effective now to um, have a software solution that can engage and interact, right? And, and help retain. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point, especially on that one, obviously knowing that space, you know, really well. Yeah, and, right. 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 Yeah, you the speed on how you interact with the student and sometimes the parent it, yeah. you know, is pretty critical when you're trying to admit somebody into a college. And yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole, you know, a lot of workflow uh, automation solutions that are going on behind the scenes that are providing real value to the university. But that's a nice little bolt-on piece of functionality that creates real value. Yeah, it's real value. Um, and then we got a company called Ecomap. And Ecomap, there, there's a, a chat functionality. And what they do is they map uh, ecosystems. So think a university has its own ecosystem. Uh, entrepreneurial support organization has its own ecosystem. And how can I interact and engage uh, with the different members and stakeholders inside of that ecosystem? And so they're doing some really interesting stuff there. Uh, think of an association. An association, they want their members engaged. Yeah. Right? And so if I can do that without, if I can do that in thousand X, my capacity for engaging with my members because of the use of AI, that's great. It's just a, a, a piece of functionality that's in it, but you put that alongside of everything else. Yeah, the business as a whole. Yeah, you got, you got a real you know, value prop. Yeah, and I think that goes to the point earlier, right? That is the, it's the value prop that's the key to all of that. Yeah, for sure. 
you know, I think those are some interesting things because one of the, you know, the leverage of those technologies, just like we've had through, you know, the years and years of different things that have come up, you know, to be able to engage better is going to be one of the key use cases for, you know, the technologies that are out there, like things like AI, because, you know, I look at it just in some of the examples you gave, right? Those are great opportunities for how do you make the other value prop to those products better? And that's key. If, and you look at a great local success story, venture backed company like Pendo, right? Yeah. Pendo is like, that's what we're trying to do is invest in like the next Pendo. Yeah. What did Pendo help its users be able to do for those listeners that don't know? They help users of software products engage better with that software, yeah. right? They, yeah. they teach them how to engage and they give feedback back to the, the actual software providers Correct. on how people are engaging with their, their product. Think about now with, with, AI and learning and that engagement, how much more you can learn about your customer base and how they're using your product and what your roadmap should look like. It creates tremendous value. Well, Tim, I think that's a great point because, you know, and I talk about this all the time, just in the companies I've been with and running and over the years, it's like customer feedback is such a gift, right, to an organization. And the more of that you get, you should not kind of just push it to the side, right? Because that gets the next set of customers and the next set of customers. Customer success couldn't be more important, right, into, you know, what people do. And I think sometimes that gets forgotten, you know, in the process. So we, so we, um, don't have the luxury investing in seed stage companies of seeing years of historical data, right? Yeah. If you already have 500 customers and are doing 20 million mm-hmm. revenue, the market's spoken that there's some need for that. Yeah. But when you're pre-revenue and we're trying to figure out if this is a company we should invest in, the most um, uh, productive way for us to do diligence is to listen in on sales calls. I want to hear what the potential customers are saying. Is this a real problem? Would they pay for it? How much would they pay for it? What would they do differently? What what would really solve their problems? And I think sometimes the founders that we work with when we're thinking about an investment are worried that we're not going to invest if customers say no. But for us, we want to hear why they're saying no, because if it can be fixed with a little bit of time and a little bit of money, that's what we're here for. Exactly. And so we need to hear that feedback and, you know, from, from customers. And so we love when they shoot with live ammo and we're doing a, a live sales call and, uh, and we hear a no, or we hear a yes, if that's, that's music to our ears. Well, that's, that is music to a lot of people's ears. Right. And I think some, to your point, right. There's an opportunity there for what did they say? And maybe if we tweak our message just a little bit, just a little bit, it doesn't have to be this, you know, complete pivot. Um, it is gold when you're listening to customers and, you know, obviously a lot of the early stage companies that I work with too, right? That's like number one, what are your customers saying? I need to see that feedback. And if they're, you know, not really looking at that as the way to go and start to figure out like, how do you, to your point, go sell, you know, this thing to the market, just because they said no, doesn't mean that somebody won't buy it. It just means that you might actually have to just tweak you know, a little bit and to your point, right. It's, I can see where early, you know, founders are a little bit standoffish by it, but, but at the same time it helps. It also depends on who you're talking to. And I'll give you a, a great example is uh, we have a company, another company called EcoBot, which is up in Nashville, which is great. And they help uh, field scientists that are out in the field, you know, taking notes, um, do their jobs faster. And so if you're pitching the owner of the company, it's, Hey, you have more, you have more capacity for these people to do more jobs and generate more revenue. But if you're talking to the actual users of the software, you don't say that we're going to give you more work and have you work more and be, we're we're selling you, you can get home 
you can get home on time for dinner, right? You, you can work four and a half days a week instead of six. And, and so the, the messaging and the value props are different depending on which stakeholder you're well, talking. And, you know, yeah, we talk with, you know, about the personas all the time, right? With a lot of companies, because I, I don't think people understand necessarily the personas of who right. they're dealing with and what the message needs to be. You know, that's a great example of what message directs to different pieces of the organization. Yeah, because and ultimately you got to know who your buyer is, right? The person down in the field is not your buyer, right? They, they are a user and they're going to influence the purchase. So you better have that message right to your point. You can get home faster because we can speed up your workload. And, you know, I think there is a miss, you know, mismatch a lot of times with trying to oversell. And even even more with AI now, I mean, you got to be very careful. You're not telling a user that, hey, by the way, this is going to replace your job. Exactly. Right? Like you, you have to be very careful about how you come in and you, you message this because some people are going to hear we don't need you anymore. Well, exactly. And, you know, and I've had this just throughout the career and some of the things that I've done just with, you know, the different companies as well, because there's always like, hey, wait a second, you're telling me that the workload is going to be a lot less. So why do you need me? It's like, no, 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 we're just going to make you more strategic in how you're doing it, right? It's just, it's taking some of the tactical work that you've got to do every day to help you be more efficient. And it doesn't mean that you're going to do more. It just means that you're doing it in a better way. And like a lot of that message gets missed, you know, with a lot of companies. And, you know, it's really important and especially to an investor, right? Because if you're not willing to accept that you have to make those changes, I can understand why then, you know, somebody's not going to want to come in and invest in it. Yeah. You know, so I know we've been kind of going, you know, in a couple different tangents here, you know, but I think it, you know, kind of bears, you know, repeating just because there's obviously an important piece to the approach in which investors take is critically important for these companies, you know, to understand. And I know we kind of talked, you know, around it a little bit, you know, but, you know, one of the things I think I hear a lot too, as well, is they don't know how to engage, you know, with investors, you know, what are some recommended strategies when those that are looking to go out there and start the raise, you know, process, how should they engage with the investment community? Sure. Um, I would start with, remember that it's the it's the investor's job to create quality deal flow and have great deal flow. It is their job to find companies to invest in. So if you start with this mindset that if you're approaching a professional investor, right, it's their job to engage with you. And so come at it with that mindset to give yourself a little bit more, right? I would say um, the next thing to do is you want to do your homework ahead of time to understand if this is a fit and what your ask actually should be. So if an entrepreneur wanted to engage me and get the most out of a conversation, if they're a services company that is raising a million dollars to try to turn it into a million and a half, they can come to me and they can talk to me, but don't be asking for an investment. Don't have that be your ask. Have your ask be, hey, do you know anyone in your network that's, that can make this? Could you introduce me to a potential customer? So when you go through and you look at the investor network, understand what your ask should be in that meeting ahead of time. And listen, if it's a fit, it'll start going from an investment perspective. It'll start going down that path. The other thing I would say is we have we have thousands of deals that are coming to us a year, literally thousands. And so when you try to sift through it, the ones that stand out are the ones that have done their homework. There's a personalized message or touch to it, which is we know this or we know you invested in this company and we're similar. Or it comes from a, a, a mutual uh, connection, a warm intro. So. There are plenty of folks that we work with, the lawyers, the CPAs, 
um, the entrepreneurial support groups that are in the area, other investors, our, our investors, our LPs. If you get a warm intro, if we get a warm intro, we're going to respond, right? Us, us having that value in that network it is very meaningful. And so it, in summary, what I would say is come at it with confidence. Remember, it's these investors' job to create deal flow for their investors, right? The, the second thing is do your research, do your homework, make it personalized, know what your ask is, a uh, reasonable ask, and then try to get a warm intro. And if you can't, if you can't network enough to get a warm intro, um, you might not be successful, right? Well, especially in this, you know, and I talk about this all the time. We've talked about this a lot here, just with a lot of the other guests we've had, you know, especially here in the Raleigh area in the Southeast, you're a very close knit network. So it, to your, I think that's really great advice of those steps. It should be pretty easy to understand those things and to get a warm intro. You're literally a degree away from just about everybody exactly. you know, around here. So, you know, I think that's probably one of the best pieces of advice that, you know, I, I've heard, you know, in a while for people just to think about when they're getting ready to do it. And, you know, I appreciate, you know, you Tim for coming on and trying to kind of share these valuable insights because these experiences are what a lot of these early stage entrepreneurs that are listening and some that are even a little bit later, you know, in their stages that I still think forget that even when you're going to go raise again, right, that you still have to go through that same relationship building. You still got to have your homework done. You still got to do all that stuff. We just had a, we start, we just had a board meeting yesterday with one of our companies and we just closed a round of financing, a three and a half million dollar round of financing um, three months ago, four months ago. And the ask from the entrepreneur was, I want to start um, getting introductions to my next round of investors. We're not planning on raising money for another 18 months, but this entrepreneur is smart enough to say, I don't want to go and ask for money the first time I'm meeting these people. Yeah. I want to build a relationship. I want to let them see, follow my traction, follow my progress, right? And then when the time is right, it'll be an easier ask. Or they'll ask me if yeah. if we can, you know, jump ahead and, and do this next fundraising round of fundraising faster or earlier than we anticipated. So it was a great. It, it, this person is going to be very successful at it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's the relationship building, right? As a CEO entrepreneur, you have to be able to build those out for the long term because again, it's, it's about the escalation and the growth, right? Of that organization that they're building. So yeah, that's pretty cool. So I think a lot of people have gained a lot of insight today and, you know, I want to thank you for coming on, you know, with us because I thought it was pretty insightful. Um, so we appreciate you being with us here. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I enjoyed it. It was great. Yeah. So, you know, for everybody that's out there listening, please do connect with the team, you know, at co-founders, but try to find somebody that knows them. Don't just go out and reach an email to you know, <laughs> out there publicly. I'm a softie. You probably get to me anyway. Yeah, so. <laughs> you get to me. I, I do know him too, so I can introduce you if you need to. So, you know, if, uh, if anybody's out there listening, you know, do take a look at what co-founders is doing. They're doing some pretty cool stuff. They got some pretty cool companies and, and I like to, you know, have fascinating discussions like this with, you know, individuals like Tim, you know, there's a lot of insight and I know they're around town. So if you're around, go see them, go talk with them, you know, do all that kind of stuff. So thanks Tim, you know, for being with us. Thank you. All right. Thanks everybody. You know, don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you out there soon. Take care. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into this episode. We really appreciate it. If you found this conversation valuable, go ahead and share it with your network and make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast listening platform to be the first to hear of new episodes. Until then, stay curious, stay engaged, and stay tuned for more amazing insights right here on the 7 Peer Podcast.